When an emergency strikes, Preppy has you covered. Made in California, canvas and leather emergency kits packed with survival food, water, and first aid with optional emergency satellite communication. Go to Preppy.co. That's P-R-E-P-P-I dot C-O slash filmweek. From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Film Week. Welcome, I'm Larry Mantle. Our critics this week are Peter Rayner, Christy Lemire, and Tim Cogshell. The new HBO and HBO Max music documentary, The Bee Gees, How Can You Mend a Broken Heart, features interviews with the brothers Gibb from various points in their career while documenting their popular rebirth with the movie's Saturday Night Fever. Writer-director Christopher Nolan's movie, Tenet, isn't new. It was released in theaters earlier this year, but few theaters were open to watch it. Now it's out for home on-demand viewing. And playwright August Wilson's Ma Rainey's Black Bottom has been adapted to film. It stars Viola Davis and the late Chadwick Boseman. It's streaming on Netflix. That's just the start of this week's movies on Film Week. Preppy wants everyone to be prepared for any situation. By bringing design to the forefront of their emergency kits, they are making earthquake prep less daunting and maybe even a little fun. Made in California, Preppy's attractive canvas and leather bags are designed to be displayed right in your living room or office. If an emergency strikes, your most essential supplies are at arm's length, not stashed somewhere deep in your closet. Though the Preppy line is quite handsome on the outside, the contents they include are incredibly comprehensive, helping you face real emergency situations with confidence. Go to Preppy.co, that's P-R-E-P-P-I dot C-O slash Filmweek for more information. It's your big week for films, and delighted you could join us on Film Week. I'm Larry Mantle, joined this week by critics Tim Cogshell of Alt Film Guide and Synagogues.com, Christy Lemire of RogerEbert.com and co-host of the Breakfast All Day podcast, and Peter Rayner, film critic for the Christian Science Monitor. We begin with a film that actually came out earlier this year in theaters, but there were so few theaters that were open, not many people had a chance to see Christopher Nolan's Tenet. The film, written and directed by Nolan, starring John David Washington, Robert Pattinson, and Elizabeth Debicki. It's now available on on-demand platforms, including Amazon Prime Video, Vudu, and Fandango Now. Christy, share with us what you thought of Tenet. Oh, goody, I get the unenviable task of trying to describe what happens in Tenet. <laughs> Um, this will be tricky. Um, in in its absolute simplest terms, this is Christopher Nolan's James Bond film with John David Washington as a CIA agent who is drawn into this seemingly impossible mission. Um, I actually did drive down to San Diego County the weekend that this opened during Labor Day weekend, just out of sheer curiosity to see what that was like, and uh, I could have waited. You know, it's uh, it's chilly and cerebral more so than most Nolan films. And I am a big fan of his films. I usually enjoy the time puzzle of it. But this seems even more intentionally inaccessible and challenging than everything else. You know, big, giant, exciting set pieces. It's all about time traveling backward. But it's so complicated that even in the midst of these really thrilling and really substantive action scenes, it's like, what are we doing here? Like you get taken out of it. It's distracting. Why are we driving a cargo plane into the airport? Anyway, 
But right. it looks great. Tanit from Christopher Nolan. Tim. Yeah, big set pieces. Very exciting stuff. He, he he knows how to move the set pieces around. Cerebral? No. No, I don't think so. Christopher Nolan films. Um, you know, clever. He's very clever. But mostly irritating is what I find in Christopher Nolan films. Because they're not cerebral. They're fake cerebral. They, they, Larry, you, we were talking about when we were kids just a few minutes ago. When we were kids, we would watch series, TV series like The Avengers and The Man yeah. from Uncle. And, and then these the Prisoner, series, yeah. Oh, The Prisoner. There would be all kinds of wacky things going on. Uh, made up physics and science. And, and none, of it, none of it mattered to us. We didn't matter at all. We were just there in the story. Christopher Nolan has this thing that he does where he takes a lot of these narratives in Interstellar and in Inception and, and other films. And he wraps them in these sort of, um, well, things like that palin- palindrome that is the title of this film, which in and of itself is, is, is an allusion to a thing called a Seder Square. Uh, and there's a character that uh, Kenneth Branagh plays in this mo- movie whose last name is Seder. And, you know, you, you can spend your, your, your entire time watching one of these Christopher Nolan movies, including this one, picking at every one of these little things that he and his brother sometimes, but just him this time, have stuck in this movies and doubled and wrapped them over on themselves in this quote-unquote time travel movie. He, he doesn't even do the time travel right. You know, I mean, as if you can do time time travel right. But he, but in every few seconds, this is this is what he'll do. He'll have two characters talking, and what they're doing is explaining to you, the audience member, what the hell is going on in this movie. That's what they're doing because this movie doesn't make any sense at all. Not even in that sort of speculative science kind of way. Now, has he has he wrapped some things up and done some things that you can uh, pull apart later? Sure, you can. You can do that. I've done it, as a matter of fact. This is what I recommend people do. Um, Go watch one of those videos where somebody will explain to you exactly what the heck is going on in this movie. Then watch this movie. You'll Uh, enjoy it a whole lot more. Tim, you're you're taking on the Andy Klein mantle of time travel curmudgeon uh, that Andy for many years uh, held for us. Uh, We'd always say, but Andy, it's a time travel movie. You can't really do it. But but you're saying even according to its own logic, it doesn't make sense? No, because at the end of the day, despite the fact that he's referring to all of these sort of things that exist in, you know, in history and science and philosophy, he ultimately has to make something up. But he won't just let it go. You know, you watch The Prisoner. They're making it all up. <laughs> and they're not trying to convince you that it's real. It's not real. It's just made up. What do you uh, think, Christy, about what, what Tim is, is saying about the time travel element of it? Yeah, I agree. I mean, John David Washington and Robert Pattinson, who I always love and everything, are both laden with like reams of exposition of trying to explain this really convoluted plot to us. And it's still super confusing. Um, but I like the performances enough that I was kind of willing to go with them. I, I wanted so much to like this because I, I like the, the time play of Dunkirk or films like that. I would argue Primer is a time travel movie that makes sense. There aren't a whole lot of them. Also, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure completely makes sense. <laughs> um, but yeah, it is It is really distancing and it is long. And afterward, you're like, what did I just see? And if that's what he intended, that's a problem. Also, as is true with so many Nolan films, the sound mix is very distancing. A lot of it is garbled. A lot of them are wearing helmets with microphones in them. And so it's, I mean, does he mean for us to not understand what they're saying sometimes? Is it, I mean, he's a perfectionist. Is this a choice artistically? 
Anyway, confusing, distancing, chilly. Tenet rated PG-13 from writer-director Christopher Nolan. Gets available on on-demand platforms, including Fandango Now, Vudu, and Amazon Prime Video. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom is an adaptation of August Wilson's play, uh, the film version directed by George C. Wolfe, with the adaptation by Ruben Santiago Hudson. Viola Davis uh, stars as the fictionalized version of the great blues singer Ma Rainey, one of the first to do extensive recording sessions as a blues singer. Chadwick Boseman, the late Boseman, uh, co-starring along with Glenn Terman. Peter, what do you think of Ma Rainey's Black Bottom? Well, let us travel back in time to 1927 <laughs> in Chicago. Uh, it, it's a terrific movie, I think. Um, you know, film plays are, are often uh, unjustly uh, knocked for, for being what they are, you know, uh, but I think if, if the material is, is first rate and the acting is, is first rate, then, you know, who cares what you call it? Uh, film play, film, whatever. It's it's terrific, and I think the Viola Davis uh, is one of her greatest performances. I think is is in this film. Uh, her uh, Ma Rainey is is a you know a, a deeply willful uh, you know uh, diva who um, has gold cap teeth and you know very heavily thick makeup and just you know literally throws her weight around. Um, won't take guff from anybody. Uh, she's the centerpiece of the movie, although a lot of it uh, has to do with the um, her band musicians who were waiting on her uh, in a Chicago studio to cut a record, and uh, that that takes up much of the of the early action. Uh, it's a terrific ensemble, the motley crew of uh, of actors. Michael Potts uh, plays the um, the bass player, Slow Drag, and uh, Glenn Turman is the piano player. Uh, Coleman Domingo is the the trombonist, and and of course Chadwick Boseman is is Levy, who's the the, the trumpet player, who's uh, you know brash and cocky, and and really uh, goes up against Ma Rainey in in many ways. You know, again, what she represents that that he um, sees the future as moving away from the slow rhythms and, and the blues roots that she represents in her generation, and it's you know it's not music you can dance to, and you know, he wants to be his own boss and lead his own band and cut his own records and, you know, but, but there's a tremendous sort of, you know, racist turmoil in his background that, that erupts in, in a, a monologue um, uh, later on in the, in the, in the, in the play that, that, that's really lacerating and is, is typical of what uh, August Wilson could do as a playwright, that he, he sort of, you know, creates these, these monologues that, that, that rise to the effect almost of, of operatic arias and uh, so it's 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 a remarkable performance by Bozeman because it shows you both the you know the brashness and and the pain and rage of this man, and and Viola Davis is is extraordinary, uh, equally so you know when she says they don't care nothing about me all they care about is my voice you know she's a shrewd woman who knows uh, you know what's coming to her and 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 she knows that that her future won't last forever and and I think it's it's really a you know, one of the better filmed adaptations of a play that I've seen. Wow, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Tim? 
Yeah, uh, th- th- this is this is this is pretty fantastic. Set in Chicago, this sort of imagined recording session that Mon Rainey is is, is uh, participating in. Uh, interesting in that it's the only one of the the the, the ten uh, plays in the Pittsburgh cycle that are not set in, in in Wilson's native Pittsburgh. The thing about Wilson is that unlike say even even Shakespeare, it, it can't be translated to another time and place or language even. Uh, they're full of great characters, but the plays are about the time and place when they are set. Uh, and the way black folks uh, are dealing with each other in America, but specifically dealing with being black in white America. Uh, that's what all of these plays are about. So they can't they can't be moved from one place to another. This play has to be in 1927 in Chicago. These people have to be who they are. I want to call out Coleman Domingo, uh, the, the leader of the band, that trombonist that, that, that Peter mentioned. And, um, and, and you can call out all of these actors for, for doing excellent, excellent work uh, here. Um, uh, they really make this this dialogue from Wilson sing. The, f- the the film looks like what Wolf has done. I, do you remember in the beginning of uh, Good Times, the series Good Times? They had oh, these yeah. beautiful sort of Ernie Barnes paintings. Yes, that's what this that's what this film looks like. Uh, is it still a, a sort of stage play captured on film? Yes, but it has the sensibility of an Ernie Barnes painting uh, uh, throughout it. And those uh, browns very... that Barnes used to such great effect in those paintings. Exactly. Capturing the, the the many different hues of black people uh, and these sort of elongated figures uh, that are so pristine and beautiful. So that's what it looks like. And then, of course, there's the music, uh, which is uh, extraordinary. So um, uh, good work all the way around. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Christy. I loved it. It's totally gripping. And, and yeah, you're right. There is this heightened nature to the dialogue. And you never forget that you're watching a play on film. But that's okay because... The dialogue is, it snaps and it leaps and it's so intense and so exquisite. And yet the emotion beneath it is real. And the, the way these characters feel about each other and the, the foundation of their interactions, that is real. And so while it may seem like heightened and, and you know, extreme, there's still such emotional truth to it. Um, it's just heartbreaking that this is... Chadwick Boseman's final performance is probably his greatest work, which is really saying something given the great variety of what he gave us over just, you know, his short career between Black Panther and, you know, Get On Up and so many different films at 42. He's so great in everything. Um, So it's just a sort of bittersweet way to uh, to see his last bit of work here. But yeah, I loved it. And Viola Davis, of course, tears it up as always. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, starring Viola Davis, George C. Wolfe directing, it's rated R, and it's streaming on Netflix. The documentary, The Bee Gees, How Can You Mend a Broken Heart, directed by Frank Marshall. Christy. So this is a documentary about the Bee Gees. Um, if you grew up in the 70s like I did, you loved the Bee Gees and they were everywhere. But this movie does a great job of explaining how they mattered for a long time before that and the origin of their music. And it's a very traditional kind of structure that we have going on here. It is a rise and fall and rise story with a lot of archival footage and video because they were performing together as, as a trio for so long. We have a lot of you know interesting footage and performances from their youth when they had more of like a British invasion kind of Beatles sound. Um, but then we have interviews from today with Barry Gibb. And that provides tremendous perspective. And they do a really great job of not just, you know, showing us concerts and showing us, you know, the the back backstage fighting and all that, but putting the Bee Gees in context and why they mattered. And the whole section around Saturday Night Fever 
is so fascinating. And there are so many great stories as to how they achieved that sound. Um, there's also a great story about how they achieved the, the falsetto that became their signature sound. It totally happened by accident. <laughs> and I don't want to give that away. Um, but it's, um, it's, it is totally fascinating. And then we have interviews with people who might seem irrelevant, like Nick Jonas, but he's talking about what it's like to work with your brothers. Mark Ronson, but he's talking about the quality of the, the production in their recordings. And so um, it's really joyous and also bittersweet. The Bee Gees, How Can You Mend a Broken Heart? Uh, Tim, we have a minute left for your thoughts well, on the film. I, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this film. I, I, I was talking to you later, my big sister. The Bee Gees first got started in 1958. They were a sort of a, a big pop hit that mirrored the Beatles a little bit. Uh, but they were very, very successful. It all went away. Uh, and all of this had to be reconceived, and then 1977, the association with Saturday Night Fever and everything after. Uh, like you, Larry, I was a young man in 1977. The Bee Gees were just this astounding group. Huge. And in the black community, this is what it was. The Bee Gees were kind of brothery uh, in, in, in that B-R-O-T-H-Y sort of sense. Uh, we looked at them, and we saw uh, you know, a, a sort of thing there that was familiar to us when we all those groups we had been looking at when we were kids and stuff. So that was a really, really amazing period. The Bee Gees, How Can You Mend a Broken Heart? The documentary is on HBO and on its streaming service, HBO Max. Frank Marshall directed It's Unrated. We have so many more films to talk about. Stay tuned. We'll be back in one minute. Film Week on 89.3 KPCC, Larry Mantle, joined by critics Christy Lemire, Peter Rayner, and Tim Cogshell. Next up is the documentary Museum Town, directed by Jennifer Trainer. Peter, share with us what this one's about. Uh, this is a really good documentary about Mass Mocha, which um, is located in the uh, uh, North Adams uh, town in the, upper, in the Berkshires. Uh, it, um, Mass Mocha is, is one of the biggest uh, visual and performing uh, spaces uh, in, in the world. I believe it's the largest museum of contemporary art in the world. Um, it's, uh, it, was, it, and it was in North Adams because at one point um, uh, it was a thriving industrial town uh, that um, died out uh, with a lot of factory closures in the 1980s. And one of the largest um, factories... Uh, was was t- taken over by um, uh, these museum curators uh, after a great deal of uh, political back and forth and, and red tape and you can imagine um, into this huge uh, performance uh, art space. Uh, Jennifer Trainer was the first development director of the museum and, and a first time filmmaker here, um, and uh, it really gives you a history not only of the. Uh, of the museum itself, but but of the surrounding community, um, and, which is still in the in the financial doldrums, but but certainly much improved since the uh, since the uh, Mass Mocha was installed because of what it brings. It, it's also you know it's near Tanglewood, it's near a lot of uh, uh, swanky universities, it's getting a little bougie and gentrified, so things are picking up a bit there. But we follow there's an artist, uh, not the rock uh, guy, Dick Cave. Uh, who is uh, putting in a, a large installation, you know, really big, uh, taking up, you know, several uh, room spaces of... of um, you know, the artists are given just about anything they want to do. 
there, and, and some of the best have worked there, including uh, Robert Rauschenberg and Laurie Anderson, who we see. There's a funny anecdote about David Byrne, who was one of the first artists who was um, had an installation in Mass Mocha, and uh, this was when um, the incoming Republican governor, William Weld, was, was uh, in being uh, uh, installed in Massachusetts, and they were worried that he wasn't going to approve um, of of the, uh, the the financing, so they took him around on a tour and, and showed him a little bit of what Byrne was up to, and uh, it turns out that that William Weld is a huge Talking Heads fan, um, so no problem. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Meryl Streep does some of the narration, uh, reads from Thoreau, uh, possibly because her uh, sculptor husband Don Gummer ha- had an installation there, um, but it's really a kind of love letter to. Uh, what can be accomplished uh, if if you really push to to have art as a part of your community, not just as a commercial endeavor, but as something that's you know a much higher grade. And it's also a demonstration of how you know, as someone says in the film, that you know, that rethinking the whole idea of what a museum can be, uh, that it's not a you know, a, museums are thought of as a quote 18th century idea in a 19th century box, uh, but this is something quite different. Museum Town, the documentary directed by Jennifer Trainer. It's unrated and available on Lemley's Virtual Cinema. Education uh, is the fifth and final film in writer-director Steve McQueen's Small Acts Anthology series. All five of the films are streaming on Amazon Prime Video. Education is co-written with Alastair Siddons. Tim, what do you think of Education? Well, this, like all of these films, the five films in the small X series of Stephen McQueen's have just been uh, outstanding. This one is outstanding as well. Very simple film, a short film. It's about a little boy. Uh, but uh, uh, all the West Indian children in the sort of uh, middle 70s um, in the in the UK, um, um, really, uh, who can't read. And he's called educationally, this is what they actually called it, educationally subnormal. And he and many West African, uh, West Indian children are taken out of their ordinary schools, public schools, and put into these schools for educationally subnormal children. Now, I've heard some people sort of make allusions to, like, um, here in the United States, we have what they call the short bus and the, the special school districts. No, this is not what was going on there. These children were put into these school systems, and they weren't being taught anything at all. Uh, if they did, in fact, have problems, none of those problems were being ameliorated. It was just a horrible, a horrible situation. This film follows this family and this little boy. It's absolutely riveting, deeply moving, and does, in fact, reflect some of the things that went on here in the United States uh, for, for many, many years and probably still does. Education from director Steve McQueen, who co-wrote the screenplay, Christy. It's very good. It's not my favorite in the series. That would be Lover's Rock, which is just exquisite. But this is really solid. And with all of these films, even with a story that seems rather straightforward, he finds such artistry in it. And so from the very beginning, you know, he puts this inside of this, this young man's mind. He's 12 years old. His name is Kingsley Smith. And he dreams of being an astronaut someday. And so we, we see his dreams, we see his visions, and that puts us in, in the mind of knowing that he's, there's a lot more going on here than the school gives him credit for. He's bright and he's creative. And this is the kind of thing that in the hands of, of a lesser filmmaker might have seemed like, you know, a very special episode of something, you know, like, a, like an after school special, a feel good kind of trickly story. But he roots it in the reality of this family's daily life and they're all dashing off to work and they're all struggling to get by and they all want what's best for him. And in the midst of it 
is this young man who is struggling too. And uh, so it's, it's inspiring without being heavy handed. And that's so tough to pull off. So yes, all five of these are excellent. Um, so go find them. The five are the films in Steve McQueen's Small Acts Anthology, the writer-director's final installment, Education, co-written with Alistair Siddons, unrated on Amazon Prime Video. Greenland stars Gerard Butler. It's directed by Rick Roman Waugh. Chris Sparling wrote the screenplay. Christy, what'd you think of Greenland? I'm shocked at how good this movie is because on paper, this looks totally stupid. (laughs) It's about a giant comet that's hurling toward Earth and only Gerard Butler can save us. What are the odds? It's always Gerard Butler. Um, So it's, it's a very simple premise. Any kind of disaster action thriller, you've got a family and the husband and wife are separated. You know, they're not getting along. They've got a young child who's caught in the middle. Um, But all that's going to go by the wayside because the comet's coming. So we've all got to look out for each other. Um, But this, it seems like a really simple, stupid premise. But there is so much legitimate tension in this. And the things that they do to try to scramble and scurry and get to safety make absolute sense like step by step what they do as far as trying to get around traffic you know they're getting emergency notes on their phone usually in movies like this people do really stupid stuff and they make really dumb mistakes where you're yelling at them at the tv like come on what are you thinking what they do makes sense but they like they lose track of each other in the chaos of the situation It was so tense, you guys. Like, if you've lost your kid for 30 seconds at the supermarket, you know what this feeling is like. And that happens, like, times a million here. So it is surprisingly gripping and well done. I liked it. Greenland, uh, the drama starring Gerard Butler. It's rated PG-13. Rick Romanois, the director, and it's on multiple on-demand platforms, including Google Play, Apple TV, and Fandango Now. The romantic comedy Sister of the Groom stars Alicia Silverstone, Tom Everett Scott, and Jake Hoffman. Amy Miller-Gross is the writer-director. Peter? Yeah, this is sort of a benignly entertaining uh, film that uh, I guess is, you might you know, call it my big fat Jewish wedding, uh, sort of seems to be uh, heading towards. It's, uh, it's about a destination wedding uh, Alicia Silverstone plays Audrey, who's in the midlife crisis. She's about to be 40. She has uh, two twins. Uh, she's been obsessing for the last 10 years since uh, she had the twins about her stretch marks, which is sort of a running gag in the movie. Um, she has a sort of fraught relationship, uh, would appear, with her husband, played by Tom Everett Scott. And um, the wedding is for her younger brother, who's marrying this kind of snooty, uh, French uh, would-be pop singer, uh, well played by Matilda Olivier um, and her uh, extended French family, who were all at the uh, compound of of uh, her uh, Alicia Silverstone's late mother. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of a lot of goings on between the, the families. Uh, they don't particularly get along, and as the film progresses, uh, Silverstone's Audrey becomes more and more unraveled, uh, and uh, you know. Antagonistic towards the the French side of things, and also the brother. She doesn't think he should be marrying this woman, and it, you know, there's a lot of uh, spilled stuff on dresses, lots of um, uh, 
the the ex-boyfriend of Audrey shows up, who's an architect uh, as well as she once was, and that creates what would seem to be some promising complications, but it's not terribly uh, well worked out the way it is. Uh, in the end, it's it's kind of tolerable. Uh, you know, Alicia, it's nice to see Alicia Silverstone in the movies. She just doesn't seem to be in many of them, but uh, I think there's also a lot of mugging that goes on with the actors here, a lot of signaling uh, of things that should be funnier than they are. Tim, what do you think of Sister of the Groom? You know, ordinarily, I would I would hate this movie. This this would fall into the category of movies that I call whining white people movies, fighting <laughs> over which architect is going to get to model remodel the house. And, oh my God! Is but you know what? Um, everybody in this movie is miserable, just miserable. They hate themselves. They hate their bodies. They hate their relationships. Uh, they don't particularly like each other. Uh, and something about that was deeply, deeply satisfying that uh, that our that our director Amy Amy Miller. Gross here knew that if you're going to make one of these movies, you have to make these people pay for the privilege that they have. And she does. And therefore, I ended up liking it a lot more than I thought it would. Plus, Alicia Silverstone. She's just sort of fabulous, all grown up and everything. I was, you know, so I, I, I enjoyed it a little bit more than I thought I would. Christy, what'd you think of Sister of the Groom? It's light. It's slight. It's a farce. You know, as, as Tim said, everyone is, is miserable and that's kind of fun. The fact that they're all so unlikable. And uh, yeah, that the actress who plays the, the French wannabe pop star is so passive aggressive, like so beautiful and perfect and so passive aggressive, but also neurotic and miserable. Um, it is okay. It's one of those movies, again, where I, I think like maybe they had this fantastic compound in the Hamptons first. And then maybe figured out, like, hey, let's make a movie here. <laughs> so the, the, the escape of it's kind of fun. Sister of the Groom is rated R. It's at the Arena Cine Lounge in Hollywood, where they set up a drive-in in the parking lot. And on video on demand at Fandango Now and Apple TV. Amy Miller-Gross, the writer-director. Hunter, Hunter, a horror thriller starring Camille Sullivan and Devin Sawa. It's written and directed by Sean Linden. Tim. Oh, yeah, this is just so deeply, deeply disturbing for so many. Nick Stahl also in the movie. This Devin Sawa and his, and his little family, his wife and his daughter, live out in the woods, and uh, and they they trap and catch uh, uh, all kinds of animals and sell the furs, the furs, the pelts, and he takes his daughter out there, and he's teaching her all the stuff. She's got a gun, and she can tell you, you know, what animal that was from the scat and all that stuff. There's a wolf, uh, a returning wolf that has come back, and this is a particularly deadly wolf, and he's going to go off and hunt this wolf while he leaves the wife and his daughter at the cabin in the woods. This is already a really, really bad idea. Um, so, you know, things go go sideways from there. It is, it, it, uh, Nick Stahl's character comes to the film. It's just so disturbing, uh, all, everything that goes down in this movie. So yes, this is a horror movie. No matter what it looks like, this is a horror movie. Hunter, Hunter, Christy. I was really impressed by how much they were able to achieve here on what is clearly a very low budget. It's a very spare, slow burn and they achieve a lot here. Sean Linden achieves a lot here just through like quiet moments of storytelling as far as setting the scene and letting us know who these characters are. And then it just steadily picks up. And again, this is a movie where people make decisions that make sense. Like every step of the way, like what they're doing logistically makes absolute sense. You're there with them. It's low key, it's quiet. And then boom, like the last 20 minutes, 
Oh my God, you guys, it is so gnarly. It is so intense. It just, it really ratchets up the, uh, the, the graphic horror. But by then, like we're lulled in, we're, we're all in on this and uh, we got to see it through. So yeah, I was, I was impressed by this little movie. The horror film Hunter Hunter written and directed by Sean Linden's unrated. It's at the Vineland drive-in in the city of industry, the mission Tiki drive-in in Montclair and on video on demand, voodoo iTunes and Google play. Uh, Peter, can you quickly tell us about the documentary Nasrin? We have about uh, 45 seconds left. Yeah, it's a terrific documentary by uh, Jeff Kaufman uh, about a woman's rights activist, a human rights activist in in Iran, Nasrin Satude, who uh, has been imprisoned on and off. I believe she's now back in prison uh, for her uh, advocacy of um, uh, all sorts of, uh, you know, movements against the the uh the regime in, in iran that she's really had a terrible time of it uh, even though she's won the soccer prize and many other uh advocates have come to her uh defense um but she really uh comes through as an inspiring figure in this film uh, which takes in a lot of archival footage uh, done over the past number of years all right, the film is Nasrin, the documentary from Jeff Kaufman. It's unrated, and it's on Lemley's Virtual Cinema. We have more films to be reviewed by our critics. We'll get to those in just 90 seconds on Film Week. Good to have you with us on Film Week. Larry Mantle with our critics, Peter Rayner, Christy Lemire, and Tim Cogshell. Next film up is the biographical musical Louis Van Beethoven. Uh, the film is written and directed by Nikki Stein and stars Tobias Moretti. Tim? I rather enjoyed this. I found this magazine, Der Musik. Louis Van Beethoven, a boy of 11 years old and most promising talent. This was printed in a magazine in 1883. He was called Louis. Who knew? Yeah. Uh, but, 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 but he was. Um, this this movie um, uh, is really complete and total life of uh, of, of uh, little Van Beethoven. We meet him first as an old man just before he's about to die, but we very quickly travel all the way back to when he was a child prodigy, being taught by his unruly and alcoholic father. Uh, and we meet his brothers and his mothers, and we bounce around in time as a young man, a little bit older man, and we see all of his relationships and his music teachers, and and exactly what he was doing in his life when he was when he was writing very particular pieces of music, his fifth, his ninth, uh, whatever. I rather enjoyed this uh, sort of comprehensive look at Louis von Beethoven. Uh, the biographical film is unrated. You can see it on Lemley's Virtual Cinema and on multiple on-demand platforms. The last blockbuster, a documentary about just what the title of the film says, Taylor Morden, the director, Christy. This is the last blockbuster video store. It still exists. It's in Bend, Oregon. And the movie kind of does this very comprehensive look at, you know, the beginning of video stores and why blockbuster mattered and how streaming really, you know, cut into the demand for going out to the video store. It is so redundant and so repetitive and so stretched out with various people saying the same thing over and over again. It relies very heavily on a lot of middle-aged white dudes to mansplain why going to rent a video is important. Sometimes it's relevant, like Kevin Smith, you know, he worked in a video <laughs> store and that's the inspiration for clerks. But sometimes it's like the drummer from Smash Mouth. 
Why do we need to hear from him? I don't know. Sometimes it's famous people who worked at Blockbuster when they were in high school, like Adam Brody or Paul Shear. Um, but for the most part, it's just stretched really, really thin. This could have been like a like a CBS Sunday morning segment. The last Blockbuster, Peter? Well, the, the mansplaining thing, I mean, look, the woman who runs the, 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 uh, the, the store is, is Sandy Harding, who's the centerpiece of the whole movie. So I, I, I think there's, you know, let's give her equal time. Uh, it, it's the, the big revelation for me was that um, apparently uh, at one point Blockbuster turned down the chance to buy Netflix for $50 million. And that um, the reason that, that Blockbuster has basically gone under altogether is was not so much because of competition like uh, Netflix and Redbox, but uh, because of you know really bad mismanagement from the top down. Uh, but there is too much of the uh, nostalgia, you know, people going on about the, they loved the click of the plastic box when you closed it and, the, you know, the please rewind. And, you know, they're getting all moony about this stuff. And it, it's a, a little hard to take. The last blockbuster, Taylor Morton, the director. It's unrated on Fandango Now, Voodoo, and iTunes on demand platforms. Breach, uh, a sci fi thriller. John Suits directs it. Edward Drake and Corey Large wrote it. Stars Bruce Willis, Cody Kearsley, and Rachel Nichols. Tim. Yeah, yeah, Breach. You know, the thing about this movie is, you know, 35 years ago when Bruce Willis was a young movie star, this would have been a hell of a movie for, for him to be in. Uh, 35 years hence, eh, not so much. Uh, this is one. This is a this is a movie about um, uh, humanity has to has to leave the the, the Earth and go to another planet. Uh, Bruce Willis is a officer on this ship. All kinds of people in these frozen pods. Yet something dastardly and dark. Uh, is going on. Uh, you know, it's it's all it all more or less takes place in like a high school basement or something uh, is where I think they shot this thing, painted the walls gray, and then Bruce Willis walked through, does that thing that he does, and the movie's over. Breach uh, is rated R. You can see it at the Arena Cine Lounge uh, in Hollywood and VOD, uh, Fandango Now, Google Play, Apple TV. A Tiger Within stars Ed Asner and Margot Josephson. Uh, the film is directed by Rafal Zelinsky, Gina Wendkos, the dire- uh, screenwriter. Peter, what do you think of Tiger Within? Well, it's it's a mixed bag, but I think uh, there is something uh, happening in it. Margot Jeff- Josephson plays a, a kind of you know goth, a midwestern runaway um, who uh, ends up in L.A. and uh, living with um, a Holocaust survivor, played by Ed Asner, who kindly takes her in and, and uh, has you know has sympathy for her. And uh, it's 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 definitely uh, an up and down experience uh, qualitatively but uh, josephson shows some talent as a young actress and asner uh is is really quite good uh as this you know uh, really you know curmudgeonly but but sensitive old man who, who you know he doesn't overplay it we're not watching a lot of you know gushy sentimental stuff it's a real performance tiger within starring ed asner and Margot josephson unrated at lemley's virtual cinema Fatal stars Hilary Swank and Michael Ely, Dion Taylor, uh, the director, David Lockery, the screenwriter. Christy? This is not nearly as trashy and lurid as it needs to be. It needs to <laughs> lean into its nuttiness more. Um, so Michael Ely is an L.A. sports agent, very handsome and wealthy and successful. He goes to Las Vegas for a bachelor party where he meets Hillary Swank. They have what he thinks is a very passionate one-night stand. But lo and behold, he goes back to L.A. and 
She's the LAPD detective who investigates the violent break-in in his Hollywood Hills home. What are the odds? Um, she's really strangely miscast here because she is delivering her lines in this like cold, steely way, like so understated to be almost monotone. She's in a totally different movie. Like she doesn't know this is supposed to be steamy and cheesy. Michael Ely gets it because he was in this director's movie, The Intruder from a year back. So I think he gets that he's like in a bad B movie, but Hilary Swank's actually trying to act and the two of them just never gel. Fatal rated R at the Paramount Drive-In Theater. And we have the National Film Registry announcement of the movies that it's added to uh, the Library of Congress's National Registry. These are, are the collection of the most influential American films. 25 pictures chosen this year, including The Blues Brothers, Buena Vista Social Club, Cabin in the Sky, A Clockwork Orange, The Dark Knight, Freedom Riders, Grease, the Hurt Locker, The Joy Luck Club, Lilies of the Field, The Man with the Golden Arm, Shrek, uh, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, and Wattstack's The Music Documentary. Tim, let me start with you. Your thoughts about these editions? Well, you got two of them for me, Larry. Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, Melvin Van Peebles, 1971, Wattstack's in 73, that uh, amazing concert, uh, summer concert set in Watts and uh, sponsored by Stax Records back in 73. I also want to call out Julie Dash's Illusions, an absolutely wonderful movie set in 1940s Hollywood. And it's about a woman who's passing uh, in order to be able to work in Hollywood, played by a very young Lynette McKee. Of course, we know Julie Dash for later, uh, part of the LA Rebellion, 1991, Stars of the Dust. And finally, with car and camera around the world, this is about a young woman named Aloha, Aloha Wonderwell, uh, who I teach in my Women on Cinema class. Most people have never heard of her. She's astounding, and she did exactly that. She travels around the world in a car when she was 16 years old with this man who she was traveling with, documenting everything that they did all over America, including here in Hollywood. Wow. There are, there's, there's, there's video footage of her with Douglas Fairbanks Jr. Notice this. She's 16 years old, and she's about an inch taller than him. <laughs> uh, Peter, you have any favorites here quickly? Uh, well, Battle of the Century, a great Laurel and Hardy movie. Uh, Ry Cooter's uh, Buena Vista Social Club, which is one of the great uh, you know, concert uh, music documentaries ever made. Uh, Man with the Golden Arm is uh, one of Frank Sinatra's very best performances and a reminder that when he wanted to, he could be a, a really great actor. I was uh, on this uh, committee years ago in the 80s, uh, the Library of Congress, to, to choose these films. I was always trying to get No Black's Pretty Poison and Skater Dater in there. Uh, <laughs> but it's it's an admirable enterprise, and I'm glad it's still going strong. Uh, and Christy, quick uh, thoughts from you about which films were included this year. I'm just surprised that Greece is just now getting in there. When you think about what a massive phenomenon that's been for so long. Um, I'm not sure that Shrek belongs in there, but it's a, it's an interesting cross-section of films. And we shouldn't forget from 1914, Kid Auto Races at Venice. Uh, that film considered to be uh, influential on American cinema as well. We so appreciate our terrific Film Week critics uh, being with us. Christy Lemire, Tim Cogshell, and Peter Rayner coming up. Our John Horn is going to be in conversation uh, with the stars of the film Sylvie's Love. That's coming up right here on Film Week on 89.3 KPECC and the KPECC app.
Wonderful to have you with us on Film Week on KPECC. I'm Larry Mantle. The film Sylvie's Love follows a woman who spends her days helping at her father's record store in 1950s Harlem. There she meets an aspiring saxophone player. Writer-director Eugene Ash combines romance, music, and a changing culture into his film. KPECC's John Horn spoke with co-stars Tessa Thompson and Namdi Asamoa at the Sundance Film Festival. It was just following the first showing of their film. They talked about the process of working on a period piece like Sylvie's Love. Here's more with John. This is a movie that clearly is very personal to its writer-director, Eugene Ash. How do you make a story that is so personal to him as a filmmaker, personal to you as actors? Um, I, I think with Eugene, just how personal it was for him, I think it's his his energy is very infectious, you know, and when you hear him talk about the period, you hear him talk about the music, you kind of just want to run off with him and get it done. You know, he just has that level of sort of influence on you. And I think that was that was probably the easiest part for me was hearing his his vision and, and, and really falling in love with that vision for the film. I don't think it was that that difficult. How do you get into the frame of mind of what this period means to these characters? Because it's a transitional period for music, it's a transitional period for women, and it's really a transitional period for people of color. So where do you start to start, how do you start to think about what it was like to be these characters in this moment in American history? I th- for me, just a, lo- a lot of research and finding out. Because I think, you know, the danger with doing period pieces is to make human behavior feel like an antiquated thing and you always want it to feel like they're living, breathing human beings. Um, but it is important to understand someone's worldview because I think whenever you're approaching a character, you're trying to understand why they make the choices that they make. And to do that, I think completely you have to understand circumstance. So I think it would be really easy for people to watch the film with a modern lens and go, well, Sylvie, she falls in love with Robert. Why didn't she just like, you know, throw it off with her fiance and decide to pursue this love? And the truth is she's making choices that are based on, you know, sort of economic stability and what her parents have led her to believe she can and cannot do in the world. So it's sort of like your choices are only as good as your options. So for me, it was important just to read um, and also to like my, the, the most fun to me is not even to read sort of like, you know, these, like a history book in that way, but to look at like advertisements of the time and look at popular media of the time and music. And you get such a huge sense of people's worldview, you know, in terms of what, what were popular held ideas, um, which is fascinating. Like I love, I love that. And I haven't had the chance to do that much cause I haven't done many period pieces. The thing that's noticeable about this film is that it's a period film that we might have seen before, but always with white characters. That this is a genre that is familiar to a lot of moviegoers, but it's never a story that is populated with black people. And that feels both it's what sets it apart, but also what it points out in terms of a huge hole in narrative cinema about people like this, whose stories we don't get to hear. Yeah, it's, it's uh, one of the main reasons that I got involved with the film from the start. You know, Eugene would talk about it and talk about it, but the thing that I was looking for was, is this feeling filling a void? Like you said, a hole. Is there, is there, is there a need for this type of story? 
Um, and when you have a love story like this that centers around African-Americans, um, it's not a rom-com. Uh, it's a period piece. It's, you know, you can name all the films from the 60s and 70s and, and, uh, and, and, and make your comparisons. But like you said, few of them are going to have uh, black characters in these roles. So I thought that that was extremely important. And, you know, there's a lot of work with the script to make it different, you know, to make sure that it wasn't something that we had seen before um, for a couple of years, actually a lot of work. We're talking with Tessa Thompson and Namdi Asamoah about their new movie, Sylvie's Love. When you think about the things that attract you as an actor, how do you weigh what you have an opportunity to do versus what you feel an obligation to do? I, yeah, that's interesting. I was thinking about that yesterday um, in terms of obligation. I, I don't. I try not to think about any obligation, truthfully. And particularly, I feel like as a woman and as a person of color, it's so easy to be boxed into a place of obligation. Like you feel like your output as an artist is supposed to like lift your people up or something. And um, I, you know, I really resent that idea. Like I, I really love the idea of doing things that um, feel expansive. And so I feel like that's an appetite of mine just to sort of see myself, whether it be me or someone else in spaces that we've not been before. Um, but I, for me, the genesis of pieces, I always like, I really like the idea of getting a job and then being like in the same breath that you're excited, you're terrified you can't do it. Like that, that to me is really the thing is to find something in it that, um, that I'm worried I can't stretch myself to or something. I don't know. That's a preoccupation. Um, just cause I think in that interesting things happen. Um, so that's sort of like what I, what I look for. Namdi, what about you as a producer and an actor? How do you decide what are the stories that you feel compelled to be a part of? There's actually, there, there, there isn't really a science to it. I, I just, it starts with me just liking the script or liking the, the story, whatever is being pitched. Um, and then from there, I can put in all of the you know wonderful things about filling a void and and all of that stuff. But really, do I do I like it? Am I interested in it? Um, Crown Heights, I was interested in. Uh, you know, Patty Cakes is completely different from Crown Heights, but still wanting to be involved and in, and in helping that get off the floor. And then Harriet and the Banker. These are all very different films from Sylvie's Love. But when you read the script, if you fall in love with it, then you you kind of go after your heart. Tessa, when I drive my kids to school, I go down Mentor and I drive by a theater called the Boston Court. Tell me about the Boston Court and what it meant to you and your life and your career. Um, the Boston Court is a theater in Pasadena, California, and um, you know I grew up. I I, know, I grew up in Los Angeles in Hollywood, but I never. No one was ever in the biz in my family. My dad moved to New York when I was little as a musician to pursue his music career. So I would go back and forth. So when I was in New York, I would see pieces of theater because my dad was sort of a part of that community. He'd occasionally do sound design. So I always dreamed of being on stage. Um, but I was from California, you know, and I was like going to school there. I had my heart set on Berkeley. I wanted to go to Berkeley. Um, but I took like, yeah, as a fun fact. So I took a little time off and, um, I got really interested in Shakespeare and a woman told me about this audition for a production of Romeo and Juliet. And the, 
Juliet had to be of color because they were doing this adaptation that was set in antebellum New Orleans, and they wanted Juliet's family to be Creole Monte uh, the uh, Creole family, and they wanted Romeo's family to be these Amer these Protestants. Um, so I went and auditioned, and I, that ended up being the first sort of my first professional piece of theater. And from that piece of theater, I didn't even have a I didn't have a headshot, I didn't have anything. I met um, my agent, and, and eventually started going out for television and film. But it it started on that stage. Tessa Namdi, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you so much for having us. That's KPECC's John Horn talking with Tessa Thompson and Namdi Asamoah, who's co-star in the new film Sylvie's Love. It'll be out next week on Amazon Prime Video. It's Film Week on 89.3 KPECC and the KPECC app. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful weekend from all of us at Film Week.